I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Gubby Gubby people of Southeast Queensland. I honour their continuing connection to land, sea and sky, as well as their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. This is episode number 193. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. And on today's episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Holly Richmond. Dr. Richmond is a somatic psychotherapist, licensed marriage and family therapist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex therapy supervisor. She sits on the clinical board of directors for Dame Products and is the associate director of Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. This unique combination of credentials enables her to focus on clients' cognitive processes as well as mind-body health. Her book, which we discuss in this episode, Reclaiming Pleasure, A Sex-Positive Guide for Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Living a Passionate Life, is an innovative look at both somatic and psychological factors in survivors' erotic recovery. And you can find Dr. Richmond on her website, which is drhollyrichmond.com. That's D-R-H-O-L-L-Y, richmond.com. And in this particular episode, the two of us dive into some of the main themes of her book, which comes from her PhD research. And you know, we speak about what are some of the common instances of trauma and maybe some gender differences as well. Talk about some really practical things that people can do for themselves to help reclaim pleasure post uh, trauma and also what you can do as a partner and how couples can navigate uh, it, those experiences of trauma and the reclamation of pleasure and sexual health. So if that is of interest to you, then uh, I definitely recommend giving it a listen. It was really enjoyable to connect with Dr. Richmond like this and hear her perspective and just get a bit more of a, an understanding about her work. So I hope you enjoyed listening. This might be a good time to describe what sexual intercourse is so you can understand some of the things we're talking about. At very special times, they like to hold each other close. God made their bodies so they fit together in a wonderful way. At one of those special love times, the sperm from the man's body can go into the woman's body. And in spite of her piety, she sometimes desired the more solid comfort of her husband Pierre's cock. And you and I can jump straight in. So the way that I like to start is with a uh, three questions. The three questions are, who are you? What do you do? And what are you really passionate about? Oh, hey, Cam. I'm so happy to be here. So I am Dr. Holly Richmond. I have a PhD in somatic psychology. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and also a certified sex therapist. I'm the author of Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and reclaiming a passionate life. Personally, I'm a mom of two boys, uh, live in the States and work from home unless I'm public speaking, running retreats, doing fun things like that. Oh, so beautiful. And, and what are you passionate about? I am passionate about really the... What I work with most is the fawn response in sexual trauma. So it's helping survivors of sexual trauma let themselves off the hook and really understand what it means to reclaim their lives. And of course, an important part of that is sexual health. I feel like that sexual health part or the pleasure part is the 
is the element of the trauma conversation that's been missing for a long time. So that's really um, my wheelhouse. And I love working with clients in that space. Yeah, fantastic. And that's what I want to speak to you about today. So that's perfect. Um, what led to you writing the book? What was it that that kind of um, yeah, motivated you to do it? Yeah. So in the state of California, which is where I got my master's, you have to do 3000 hours of internship. And I did most of mine at a rape crisis center. Um, and while I was there and working on my dissertation, um, that was the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault specifically. So I surveyed my clients there, put together this dissertation. It just kind of lived as a piece of research for about 10 years. Um, then I was speaking at with Esther Perel at one of her sessions live, and someone said to be me, that needs to be a book. And it turned into Reclaiming Pleasure. But with Reclaiming Pleasure, we expanded it to all sexual trauma, not just sexual assault. Um, mm -hmm. That's something I'm passionate about, too, is really letting people know, helping people understand what happened to them, sexual abuse, date rape, rape, sexual trauma, gender harassment. I mean, I feel like a lot of it's not talked about and people really don't have language for what happened to me. Yes, I 100% agree with you around language. Uh, I think that's across the board when it comes to sexual experiences, both when we're describing things that are traumatic and also when we're describing things that are pleasurable uh, and things that are going on for us you know, in a sexual context just in general. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate for diversifying the language that we use and just giving people the vocabulary. So yeah, 100% on board with that. Um, I'm curious, what was the biggest takeaway from your research during that time? Mm. Well, there's really three parameters that I walk through most, and I've added a fourth um, at this point, you know, 12 years later. So the three parameters that I found were control. So survivors of sexual trauma need to feel an element of control to regain, to regain pleasure. Of course, that seems a little bit obvious, but it's really twofold. So there's maintaining control and relinquishing control. And we know we need to relinquish control if we're going to get to number two, which is pleasure, right? So pleasure needs to be expansive, really that quality of eroticism, life force, vitality, vivacity, that, that needs freedom. So control, pleasure, and then the third is connection. And I've really found in my studies and working with clients that connections, primacy, and healing is absolute. It is so hard to heal if we're not feeling connected. And this doesn't have to be connected with a romantic partner, but just some kind of purposeful connection, whether it's friends, family, community, religion, spirituality, the local dog shelter, there's just gotta be some element of, oh, I feel safe here, I'm chosen here, I'm wanted here. Mm, and what was the fourth one that you added? Fantasy. Oh, cool. Yeah. So really stepping into that space of fantasy and taboo. Um, Cam, I know you know this, but for so many survivors of sexual trauma, these they have these forced seduction fantasies. And oh my gosh, how many people I've sat with have just like, I can tell it's like sitting right there, but they have so much shame and they can't say it, but it usually comes out with some version of I've been sitting on this forever. I have to tell you, I have I have fantasies of being raped or I have fantasies of getting raped or I have fantasies of sometimes it's them doing that to other people, but it's usually some some format re-traumatization of that. And it is re-traumatizing until they really get a handle on 
why that fantasy makes so so much sense. I mean, women in general tend to have that forced seduction fantasy. I know you've talked to Justin Lay Miller, so you're like all in the, the fantasy headspace right now, but it's um, sitting with the things that we think are so awful or that make us unlovable that who could ever imagine this? Why would I think such a thing? And it's this, this really common element of fantasy and taboo and relinquishing control of that space that so many survivors need to step into. Mm -hmm. And I definitely want to circle back around to that uh, because there's some really interesting things that I've seen people do with regards to like soliciting a, a BDSM practitioner, for example, and replaying some of those uh, fantasies and acting them out to, to go back to, you know, premise number one which is like being in control of that and and you know reclaiming control and being the person who can direct that experience so i'd love to circle back around and, and get to that uh, towards the end of the conversation but something that, that i was curious about was uh, your use of the term sexual health and um you know reclaiming sexual health after trauma and and how that maybe relates to pleasure. Are you using those terms, sexual health and pleasure interchangeably or are they different in meaningful ways and, and how they link to one another? I was just curious. So you're talking about sexual health and pleasure. And I really, I do hold those two things in separate containers. Pleasure is, is an essential part of sexual health. Um, I use the World Health Organization definition for sexual health. And I was just saying it's probably only 12 or 15 years ago, the pleasure was finally included. Like we just still have so far to go as far as having pleasure be inclusive to our sexual health. Because mostly people are just thinking, do I, or do, do I or do I not want to get pregnant? I definitely don't want to get an STI, a sexually transmitted infection. Uh, yeah, I might know a little bit about consent, but I barely know anything about pleasure. Mm -hmm. I 100% um, agree with you that pleasure is lagging behind in its inclusion in conversations around sexual and reproductive health. I actually spoke at a symposium in October early this year, which is for like the Australian uh, bloodborne viruses and sexually transmitted infections, like big conference. And there was a bunch of medical professionals and urologists and immuno, 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 immunologists. Oh, I struggled to get that word out. Um, and my presentation over this five-day symposium i spoke for 15 minutes and it was about the importance of pleasure and sexual health education and i was the only person over this five-day symposium they gave me 15 minutes to speak about the importance of pleasure and uh, so it was just like you know a, a confirmation to me of like the lack of importance that that uh, they place on the role of pleasure in like this whole uh, conversation and sexual health so yeah 100 uh, i agree with you uh, on that um, Cam, I'm curious, in Australia, and I, I heard you say you have children, um, do you get sex ed in middle school or or is that included or not included? Uh, I personally had one class in uh, high school uh, for sex education. So uh, I would have been, uh, I guess, maybe 15 years old, I think. And the teacher was the uh, PE teacher, physical education teacher. I feel like he drew the short straw and he had to do the sex ed class. And I went to an all boys school as well. So it was a, you know, it was very immature, let's say. It was a lot of joking and he didn't really know how to hold space for the class. Just popped a video on and it was an outdated video from like the 80s about talking about sex and puberty. So it's very puberty oriented, very like STI prevention, pregnancy prevention oriented. And um, 
although things have shifted and it's a bit different state by state and school by school uh, here in Australia, pleasure is still not included in the curriculum, uh, of course. Uh, you know, it's kind of to be expected. But um, they've just recently passed um, some legislation which requires consent to be mandated in the curriculum now. So, um, and that's been spearheaded by um, a young woman here in Australia uh, called Chanel Contos. And so that's cool. That's good. Um, still a long way to go. And, you know, the conversation doesn't end at consent. You know, it should start there, but oftentimes people think that it needs to end there as well. But we're, you know, pushing and advocating for comprehensive sex and relationship education that includes, you know, a bit more of a holistic approach that incorporates pleasure and sex positivity. Uh, but we're, we're still a long, long way off. There's some... There's some outside organizations that can come in to schools as third parties if the school so chooses. But in terms of like standardized curriculum, no, nah, there's nothing really. From what I understand, the sex education is still underneath the risk mitigation or risk management branch of the curriculum. And so hence why it's framed as like, here's how to prevent pregnancy, here's how to prevent STIs, right? But for a long time, again, from my understanding of the way the Australian curriculum is, there's there's like risk management things that you can opt for to, to tick off that box in the curriculum. And so sex education is in there. And so if you, as a school, decide that's the risk management education you want to teach, then you can do that. But the other things in there are stuff like traffic safety and stranger danger and, um, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like cyber safety and things like that. So if a school so chooses, they can opt not to do any sex education and tick that box of risk mitigation by doing, you know, here's how to safely cross the road, you know, and that's a, that's like a a story that's come out of, of, um, some schools here in Australia. And I know that because my mum's a primary school teacher as well. So she's pretty across like the way that, that it's been framed. Anyway, that's a bit of a ramble, um, and I know it's slightly different in in the United States as well. But yeah, it's not not great here, unfortunately. I would say significant. Like it, it doesn't. We don't have to do anything. So I would say it's definitely skewing on the worst side. Um, I I love that at least they're getting consent. So my definition for sex positivity is is this: all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. Mm. So if we could just teach young people, you literally have to check two boxes, consent and pleasure to have this be a good experience. What you do in that experience may include penetration, may not, may include oral, may not, may include kissing, may not, but it's just, we have to check consent and we have to check pleasure. Yeah. I think it's a really beautiful and simplified way to help young people specifically start to really, you know, have that, that, uh, education. Um, getting back to, to your research, because I could talk about sex ed for, for ages and I um, would love to, but it's not the conversation that I wanted to have with you, um, is uh, when, when you came to your research and then writing your book and specifically talking about like reclaiming pleasure and sexual health post-trauma, did you notice gender differences with regards to, you know, I think binary here, with regards to the way that men versus women started to reclaim their sexual health and pleasure? Some, I would say there's some universal truths that I see more often than not, but in my work with men and my work with women, there are definitely some differences there. So women, um, well, let's start here. So the four trauma responses, right? Fight, flight, freeze, fawn. 
women are almost always going to be in that freeze or fawn category because we know over 85% of sexual perpetrations are perpetrated by someone known to the survivor. So the media wants us to think uh, rape is always stranger rape. You know, a woman is walking down the street and some dude jumps out of the bushes or she gets in her car and some guy's hiding, hiding in the back seat. That is that is less than 12% of the time. So it just, it, it typically doesn't happen that way. Um, for men, they're going to know their perpetrator as well. I would say most of the men that I work with in my practice were sexually abused in childhood. So again, there it was... I guess more of a freeze response. Um, most didn't fight or flight because how is a eight-year-old going to fight a 32-year-old? There's not a possibility for that. Um, for most of the men I work with, it was some institutionalized uh, sexual abuse. So school board, boys and girls club, uh, Boy Scouts, church, you know, all of these places where sexual abuse of boys is, is really rife. Um, Women tend to tell sooner than men. So I'm working with several men. I do expert witness uh, a consultation on, on big um, lawsuits. I have a man right now who's about to turn 65. And the first time he told anyone about his abuse, which was me, and I feel so grateful for that. Um, but he was he held that for 60 years or 50, 50 years. Yeah, because he was nine when it happened. I mean, so that's that's the difference. Um, well, let me ask you about that, Holly. Why? Do you, what's what's your intuition and and understanding tell you about why that is? Mm -hmm. Why they why men don't tell? Mm -hmm. um, it's just so shameful because most boys are abused by same sex perpetrators, and um, if they're straight, there's this constant kind of niggling voice. Oh my gosh, was I gay then? I have to prove myself to be hypermasculine to prove I'm not gay, or if they are gay, there's this story of did my trauma make me this way? Um, I find with my men who were perpetrated against in childhood as well, they probably um, had some same-sex experiences in adolescence or adulthood, so that shame is sitting there as well, and that was really trauma repetition, and I'm talking about for my straight men. Right. So really men who are like, I am straight, but I would go get blowjobs from guys on the street or I would go to a gay bar in New York and hook up with someone. Never had a relationship with a guy, never wanted to, but I did that for 10 years. And oh, my gosh, the shame of that. And and as you know, and as I know in this work, like that makes perfect sense, you know, like mm. really trying to get a handle on it, trying to figure it out, somehow have these horrific experiences from childhood make some kind of sense. Yeah, I was wondering if we could unpack that a little bit more because I, I have worked with several guys who fit that specific yep. description. And um, you know, for people that are listening, they're like, like, like why? Maybe they you know, people that are listening who haven't been you know, experiencing you know, uh, childhood sexual you know, abuse, maybe they're like, why, is, like, why would they do that? Like, why would they put themselves back in that situation? I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more for, for listeners. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's set the scene. So you've got a, a boy between the ages of let's say seven and 11. And I want to say this here. So I don't forget the reason abuse stops with boys is typically in my experience, when they get to the point where they're as strong as, or stronger than their perpetrator, that's what makes sexual abuse against boys stop, which is horrific. 
So when they hit puberty, when they're 14, 15, and they literally have the strength to fight off whoever their adult perpetrator is, that's when the abuse stops. For girls, it's when they hit 11 or 12 and they become savvy enough to go, wait a minute, I could tell someone. And then they threaten to tell and that shuts the abuse down. So I think those are two really interesting constructs of how in, in this way, the binary is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, but back to your question. So a nine-year-old boy gets abused by a 30-year-old man over the course of two to three years at the Boy Scouts after school every week. He uh, tries to date in high school. He just has so much anxiety or so much uh, depression that he can't really figure it out. He's got all those hormones flowing through his system. He feels like he just needs to have sex. So in his late teens and early 20s, he finds his way into Manhattan or a big city and he walks into a gay bar and he gets hit on and he can go in a parking lot or go home with the guy and either do to the guy what was done to him or have the guy do to him what the perpetrator did in order to feel like he has some control over this awful thing that happened to him as a child. So there's that part of control. And then there's the narrative, like, if I keep doing this again, I'm going to make it mean nothing. So, right. So when someone is sexually abused or um, experiences several sexual assaults, I feel like they either shut down sex completely. They're like, nope, I'm going asexual. I'm not going anywhere near that. Or they might step into some kind of compulsivity. And that's just to minimize it. It's like, oh, that meant nothing. I'm going to have a lot more sex to prove that that horrible thing that happened to me didn't mean anything. It's no big deal. And I think that's some of the construct that plays out with these men too. Like, I'm going to prove that this is no big deal and it doesn't bug me. Mm, do you notice that those men as well will seek out, like maybe they'll watch gay pornography and they'll seek out like the thing that maybe happened to them through the visual medium of the porn that they're watching? Yeah. Yeah. I would say for some, yes. And others who are really kind of desperately connected to their being straight there, they will reject that. So then, then when they do feel this need, this trauma repetition or this need to have sex, that shame just sits with them so profoundly because, and again, I, you can be whatever you want to be gay, straight by all the things I, I want people to be who they are these men that I'm talking about are straight. Like I have mm -hmm. explored their sexual templates with them. We have gone back. These are straight men. It's just hard to kind of to sit with, oh my gosh, I was having sex with men all through my twenties. Um, you know, for my client who's now in his sixties, he's like, oh, I, I feel, I feel disgusting about that. And I realize now why I was doing that and why that mm -hmm. seemed like a good solution at the time. Yeah. I've heard from some of my clients that they like, and this is true for me if I share like my experience, like I was, I was bullied in high school for being gay and I'm not gay. I just wasn't as, you know, stereotypically masculine or macho as some of the other boys who teased me for being gay were. And my best friend happened to be gay as well. So I was gay by association. And again, I, I at the time as a you know teen, I was like, I was okay with it because my best mate was, was gay. I felt a bit shittier for him actually being gay. And I, I kind of, you know, it was a little bit like water off a duck's back for me, but it did have an impact. Um, but like something that I've heard other, other clients of mine say is like in conjunction with like being teased for being gay and uh, when they weren't uh, and also having had 
like a male perpetrator, you know, abuse them when they're a child, the thought came up of like, maybe I, maybe I must be gay. Maybe I am gay. Maybe everyone knows this about me and I don't know this about myself because I've had, you know, a sexual experience with a man and all these people are like saying that I'm gay. Like maybe I just must be gay. And so like they've lent into that story that they've just kind of heard about themselves and started to tell themselves and then, you know, realize, well, that's not actually true. And that's not, I am straight and like, what have I been doing the last several years? And so that's definitely, um, like I can, I can relate to that because I've been told by so many boys when I was growing up, like that's like, you're gay or, you know, that you're, what you're doing is so gay. And I was, and I think there's like a, I don't know, I don't want to project here, but I think there's like a moment in a lot of straight boys lives of being like, am I gay? Like, is it, you know, and there's maybe some wrapped up some, there's wrapped up homophobia in that as well. Like, cause it's oftentimes framed as like a negative thing to be gay as well, when it's of course not. And so that's a, a thing that I've heard a lot of guys share in, you know, vulnerable men's group spaces of being like, yeah, I, I questioned my sexuality. I thought like that I was gay and then realized that I wasn't. And um, it's often questioning from a place of negativity, not questioning from a place of exploration, you know, which is you, like is what I would hope for when people start to, to question their sexuality, right? It's like they're going yeah, from, from a place of celebration and exploration rather than from a place of like, God, what if what if this thing about me is true? That's such a bad thing to, to happen to me. So um yeah, I don't know where I was going with this. I don't think I formulated a question at the end, but I just wanted to share that that has been the experience that I've heard from from guys. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a really good point. Like, so the lack of kind of cognitive dissonance is what I'm hearing you saying. It's like, I think I know myself, but everyone must know me better. Like, can you imagine living with that? And it sounds like you touched on it for a while. The way I talk about it is um, in terms of integration or integrity and this is not moral or ethical at all. So to me, integrity is my mind and my body are on the same page, right? And for so many sexual trauma survivors, they they don't have that because they're having fantasies about this or people are telling them they're gay, so they must not know themselves. When you get that mind and body on the same page with sex, it's everything changes, just like mm. the embodiment, the empowerment, everything has the possibility to shift. Yeah, well, talk to me about like getting on the same page again and reclaiming sexual health and pleasure after trauma. Like, what does that process look like? Are there like commonalities with people's healing journeys or is it different and unique for each individual person? I'm curious about what that specifically looks like. Yeah, yeah. So once we're kind of through, um, so we'll, in my work, um, in the book, it, it goes in process, but we'll kind of figure out what happened to you, right? So we're going to name it. And then we're going to look at shame and then we're going to look at sexual health and, and kind of the contradiction between shame and true sexual health. Define that. What does that mean for you? When we step into the protocol, which is uh, control, pleasure, and connection. So we go through control and we play with elements of when do you feel safe and in control? Where can you relinquish control to have a little bit more expansion in your, your um, sexual life? Then we get to the pleasure, which is, I call it, um, I look at people's sexual mm -hmm. templates. So we really discover your sexual blueprint. I call it sexual template, but I break that down into desire and arousal. So desire is the psychological process of wanting. Arousal is the physiological process of wanting. Um, so with my clients, I'll go through a checklist of like the things that you find sexy versus the things that turn you on. Cam, it's amazing. Most people have never even considered this in their life. What turns them on? They just go about hooking up with people and um, I'm supposed to be attracted to him or her. 
And I've seen on porn that it goes like kissing, then oral, then penetration, and then he comes on my face and then we're done. Yep. <laughs> not even thought about, wait a minute, right? What mm -hmm. do I want? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful strategy um, or just like activity to do. And I, I do something similar with my clients. I'll get them to write, you know, I'll, I'll get them to start with turn-ons and turn-offs and, yep. and I'll, I'll say to them like, start aesthetically, right? Start like superficially or surface level and then get more abstract as the list goes on. Um, and so, you know, I'll troubleshoot with them like, yeah, okay, do you, do you, are you you know, a legs guy or are you an ass guy? Like, you know, very vulgar and just like straightforward. And it's like, great, we'll just write those down. Okay, like let's start thinking beyond that. Like what are the types of sex that you enjoy having? How do you feel when you're having sex that's pleasurable for you? Do you feel in, you know, in a position of power or do you feel in a position of submission or passivity? Or do you feel like there's a lot of emotional and romantic connection there? Or is it something that, you know, is maybe feels a bit more like, maybe the framework of thinking of like movie genres, like what type of sex is really pleasurable for them is like, what type of movie genre do they really enjoy? It's like, is it a thriller, you know, sexual experience or is it a romantic rom-com, you know, or is it a comedy, you know, what, what's like, um, you know, what, what turns them on in that regard? And, and then you know, even more abstract than that, you know, it's like, to, you can think of, um, you know, the, the locations that they're in or like the, conversations that they're having like what are those things that that contribute to your turn-ons and i often share with them the dual control model of sexual response right the um yeah the the seesaw you know yep. uh, model where you know we're stacking up things on the side of arousal and desire and turn-ons and we're trying to mitigate or minimize the amount of things on the turn off uh, so that we're tipping the scales in the balance of uh of your arousal um, and your desire and your turn-ons uh, but there's um yeah, there's so much like gold that comes out from doing activities like that and getting people to think quite abstractly. Um, so yeah, I, I really resonate with that. And I guess I'm that, like, what I want to ask you is when you start doing that, like it's all well and good, let's say, to start doing it conceptually and having those thoughts and even writing them down on, in the activities. What I've noticed is then it's like, all right, now we're getting to the practicality side of things. I'm going to start to do some of this. And usually there's like a little bit of a hurdle there. They, they feel much more prepped and, and have much more, they feel much more resourced to go and actually start to do those things practically. But there's also like the tension and the fear that comes up of now being in the moment to explore that. And I'm curious if that's something that comes up for your clients and how do you help them navigate like being in the moment in those, those spaces? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Um, and I, I love the way you describe kind of your turn-ons and turn-offs. The only thing I would add there that maybe your listeners will appreciate, I also do it through the five senses, right? Oh, nice. So, so I'll, I'll do the five senses for both, turn-ons, turn-off, desire, arousal. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. When we're talking about control, it's very like, yep, this makes sense. Where can I maintain control? Where can I relinquish? We get to pleasure and it's all fun and exciting. And we get to talk about all this juicy stuff. And then we get to connection where they have to like literally go outside their house on the street and do it. And there's kind of like an, oh fuck moment. They're like, you know, they're deer in the headlights. They're like, wait a second. Now I've got to, I got to go do this. Um, but th that's really the point where, so I'll model with them. We'll work through some, like, what's your dating profile going to look like and who, how is it different now? Uh, who you're looking for on, on, um, a dating app versus a year ago versus two years ago. What are your boundaries? 
what are you ready to say yes to on the first date? Um, who are you ready to say no to? I do this fun yes, no exercise where I get help them practice saying no. I feel like for female bodied people in particular, um, saying no is can be a pretty tough thing. So we will practice that. Um, so it's really saying no to things that they're not interested in anymore and being able to say yes to their pleasure and, and holding those two things in, in, in the same grasp. Yeah, and I love that you do practices where people can practice asserting their boundaries, right? And and doing things, I do something similar and I've been to workshops where there's like an opportunity to voice boundaries just with hand signals, not necessarily with, with your voice as well. And like having that like embodied sense of like, no, that's a stop and like really, you know, to know and putting your hand up and then, then learning how to vocalize from that place as well can be a really, yeah, it was a really fascinating uh, workshop uh, around consent and boundaries. So I think that's really cool. Um, I guess like, you know, the, the exploration then of pleasure from, you know, that place of empowerment and acknowledging like what it is that they are wanting to be in control of and what it is that they're relinquishing control of. Like, do you get clients who unintentionally having started to do this work, re-traumatize themselves and like experience, maybe have a negative experience that kind of like triggers some old wounding and the traumas that they have you know, had in the past. And what do you do in those instances where that, that kind of comes up? Yeah. Cam, I have a feeling you work the same way, but um, because my practice is very somatically based, I give homework every single every single session, maybe our first two or three, it'll be history taking, building rapport. But then after that, you are going to get some body-based homework every single time. So absolutely, there's no way this cannot happen. So let's say I give someone the homework of, you're going to go take a shower and just rub your breasts in the shower. Next week, she comes back. She's like, I had a full-on trigger response. You gave me a panic attack. Fuck you. I am never doing that again, right? Those, those moments can happen but it's an opportunity. So the, so there was something there that she didn't know about breasts, water being in the shower. We're gonna learn to approach that in a completely different way. And it's either gonna be one of two things. Okay, Samantha, do you, do you wanna decide in this moment for right now for the next six months, breasts, touching your breasts and water are, are not gonna, those two things are not gonna come together? Or is this something, would you really like to be able to touch your breasts in the shower? And should we gradually titrate? Should we build a protocol so that you can do that over the next four to six weeks and give her the mm. choice? Yeah, yeah, that client-centered approach um, and put the agency yeah, in their hands. Yeah, I, I quite like that. And I think like there's an element of, um, what is it, exposure therapy, right? From you know, a CBT approach, um, which is, yeah, that definitely harkens back to my counseling days. Uh, so I quite like that. And um, I guess like there's a, uh, you know, if I get a bit more specific with this question, what do I want to ask? So like, if you're starting to do this work, right? Uh, there's an, I mean, part of it is the intention to be sexual with another person, right? And to, to you'd be able to explore, you know, freely and openly your sexuality with, with a partner or, whether it's long-term or casual, that person that you're exploring with being sexual with, I guess like may or may not know about your traumatic past and may or may not know that you're doing work around reclaiming your sexuality and your pleasure and overcoming that trauma. And so I'm 
curious then like have there been instances with your clients where like being sexual with another person that partner has maybe triggered something unintentionally right because maybe they didn't know or maybe they did know and they just like you know weren't able to you know adhere to boundaries properly enough or like didn't have the communication skills enough to be able to like support that person who's who's trying to reclaim their sexual health um and like how do you navigate that with, with when there's like a another person involved and, and maybe that's created some re-triggering. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the most, I would say, frequent questions I get. Um, it's a version of that. Plus how soon do I tell a new partner that I'm a survivor of sexual trauma and I need to have these boundaries? Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's reciprocal. I talk about reciprocal vulnerability. So in connection, you know, vulnerability has this quality of reciprocity. And I really love helping survivors learn to trust themselves because a lot of survivors will tend to kind of jump. They'll open everything up. Oh my gosh, here's a person that seems safe. I'm going to be fine. And then it turns out not to be safe. So I really walk through a step-by-step what you're giving, are you getting that back? So if you're offering something vulnerable, are you getting that back as well? Um, of course, a survivor never has to tell a partner the details of what happened to them. That is not part of the deal. Um, a partner should say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. How can I support you? I'm here if you want to talk about it. If you don't, we don't. The conversation should be um, what's on the table, what's off the table. If there is a re-traumatization, um, my client will usually bring that to me and it usually comes you know, framed in a lot of shame about, oh my God, I totally froze during this sexual experience. Um, this woman I was with must've thought I was so weird. How do we walk me through that? Almost always in a case like that, she's gone too fast, right? Or he's gone too fast. They've gone too fast, um, trying to push their body farther than it's willing to go. So much of the recovery of sexual health is just not throwing ourselves under the bus anymore, right? To make other people happy. And especially for people that fall into that fawn response, which is go along to get along, complicity, yes, 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 people pleasing, overextending ourselves. Mm, and you've spoken about the fawn response. Uh, you've mentioned it, I suppose, and, and kind of alluded to the other responses as well, being fight, flight, and freeze. I'm curious if you were able to elaborate on like how those show up in a sexual context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So fight is, it's not, well, when I'm working with a survivor later in life, the fight response I'm going to see there. So most survivors didn't fight back during their trauma. Some did, some did, but um, if it was stranger rape, most of the time they do. And I want your survive your listeners to hear this too. Um, this hit me probably seven years ago when I'm working with a survivor. So one experience, stranger rape, one experience, kind of a typical sexual trauma, let's say a date rape. The stranger rape was very scary. The stranger rape came out of the blue. That person is probably going to have symptoms of PTSD, but what they do not have is shame. So their healing process and my experience moves along a little quicker than someone whose brother was abusing them for three years and they never said no until, you know, they were 14 and finally said something. So like here, the shame it's, there's no shame. It's everything is externalized that happened to me. Whereas most sexual trauma survivors, it's the shame is internalized. Somehow I was complicit in this experience. 
and kind of extricating that, getting rid of that is, is a big deal. Now, one is not better than the other. I hope everyone hears me clearly. One, they're both awful. Nothing is good. One, you've got PTSD, really being afraid to live in the world. The other, you've got internalized shame. So they're neither good, but it's just, it was interesting working with both constructs. I was like, oh, okay. Shame's not showing up here. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I think that's important to understand in terms of like approaches, right? Like someone might be, I see this all the time, applying like a one-size-fits-all approach to working with trauma or, or with shame. And it's like, well, that person, based on their experience, might actually not need that approach and they might need something different. So I think that, again, comes back to that kind of client-centered approach. Um, cool. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really interesting and a, and a really good insight as well. Um, I want to circle back around to that question then. Um, so you mentioned like that fight uh, response shows up maybe in the moment from that stranger um, experience. What about when they're now starting to be sexual in a consensual way? Like, does does fight that fight response show up again? And and if so, how does that manifest? Yeah, it shows up relationally. So it doesn't usually show up during sex. It it shows up into a high conflict relationship. So any perceived boundary violation in the relationship that is going to be a big argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, interesting yeah yeah Yeah. the the, uh, flight response is going to uh, literally look like you know the partner who storms out the door and and leaves for two hours 12 hours two days um the the partner who blocks your number on their phone and you can't get a hold of them that's that's flight freeze is going to look like stonewalling or just um complete shutdown right? So uh, a survivor who's just like really can't find, um, who just doesn't have the resources yet to advocate for themselves. Uh, Whereas Fawn, um, that survivor, even if she or he is right, they're going to say, I'm so sorry, you're right, I'll do better next time. I really apologize. Hey, uh, do you want to go get something to eat? Do you want to go grab a beer? Or do you want to have sex? Let's make this better. Mm, yeah okay cool so there's like a relational context of the way that those survival responses show up i'd be curious to get your take on this so i'm going to share something with you that was shared to me by one of my mentors and and i won't name him because he works a little bit clandestine uh, here in australia uh, but people that are listening that are familiar with him might might know what i'm about to to share so one of his interests is exploring those survival responses the fight flight freeze and fawn specifically during sex in and when they show up in the sex act itself and so one of the things that he shared with me i'll, I'll kind of you know parrot an example to you and i'd be curious to hear what your take is on this is so for example a flight response in that relational context as he shared might look like storming out and you know and leaving literally fleeing um but during the act of sex one of the things that he suggests is that a flight response could happen where the uh partner who's been you know having that response maybe disassociates or like maybe closes their eyes and doesn't want to doesn't want to be seen right doesn't want to see like kind of flees mentally flees kind of uh subjectively in into into their subconscious and and disassociates it's maybe the wrong word there because it's a bit clinical but like just kind of checks out and um an example of the freeze response that he you know offers up is like potentially someone freezing in the sense of like holding their breath and you know and and literally 
kind of freezing and, and having that tension in their body and clenching through the jaw. Um, he talks about like the uh, fawn response being, um, as he said, it's been a while since I had this conversation with him, is um, like uh, similar to, to what you're sharing in that kind of like relational sense, like just kind of like trying to appease and trying to just like, hey, let's just make this better. And so like in the sexual context, it's just like, yep, okay, like just let's just have sex. Like let's, let's just go for it. Like there's no, it's quite disembodied. And it's just like, yeah, here's, you know, let's just, let's just get it over with. Like here, just do it. Um, and then the fight response, if I recall, he was saying is like the, um, like the pushing, kind of pushing back a little bit, like pressing back into the partner and kind of like trying to push them away a little bit um, and being a bit more like, like aggressive is maybe the wrong word, but a bit more like physical and um, and like, you know, tightening up through the chest and, and having that like, um, that, that yeah, physical presence, I suppose. So I don't know, that was like a very whirlwind way of describing like what he is like really interested in, in exploring. And I'm curious to know if you've got a, a take on that and what you think of that kind of interpretation yeah no i think all of those are good and i'm i'm thinking of perhaps some other ones as well but it's it's interesting like let's take the fight response because it can be and i think for all of these if we went through and really <clears throat> dug in here there could be some adaptive and some maladaptive ways that these show up because as you were saying that if if let's say a woman wants to be more assertive or dom we don't want to pathologize that, right? Unless, here's the key, where is the person? Are they in the past or are they in the moment? That's the whole thing with trauma therapy, right? Is to really relegate the, the trauma to the past, which is where it belongs. Because if we can get the person here in the present moment, almost all the time, Cam, I'm sure for the clients you work with too, they've really created lives that are quite safe, right? These are high functioning individuals. They are not at risk of being abused or date raped or, you know, any of the things sexually harassed that they went through in their childhood, adolescence, um, early adulthood. So we've got to get them here in the present moment. So yeah, fight response that is based in the past and they're actually really pushing against a perceived perpetrator is a maladaptive response. Whereas a fight response and um, channeling that assertion and aggression in the present moment because they chose to and because it's an integrated experience for them, adaptive. Mm, yeah, I love that uh, distinction there. And I think, you know, there's, oh, there's the, the, the survival responses sometimes get a bad rap, you know, because they're very much associated with trauma, right? And, and survival and, and you know, being stressed and anxious. And uh, another uh, mentor of mine, uh, who I will name, his name is Nick Spadaccini. Uh, he used to be an engineer. And he's like, tension and stress, not always a bad thing, right? Because it's what you need to build buildings, right? You need the tension and the stress on certain parts of the building. And so, um, you know, sexual tension is the word that comes to mind there, right? And so like that tension and that like anticipation and a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of um, your know, sympathetic nervous system activation is necessary for uh, you know an exciting, pleasurable sexual experience, and even for sexual functioning, right? It's important for sexual functioning to have both branches of the autonomic nervous system firing. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate the difference there between um, adaptive and maladaptive. I think it's a good uh, a good takeaway. Um, cool. Is there anything else you wanted to share on that? I, I recognise that I just like dropped that on you and said, "Tell me what you think." And I'm just curious if there's anything else that you wanted to share. No, it's perfect. But I just, you know, I love talking about the nervous system too. And, you know, fear and excitement are the same 
sympathetic nervous system channel. So, so many of my clients that I'm like sussing that out to, are you excited or are you afraid? Right. And it gets confusing at the beginning stages of their trauma. Um, are you shut down? Are you neutral? Because a lot of times if someone is neutral, they're like, oh, I'm depressed. And I'm like, are you like, let's, let's stick around in there. Or are you just like, not afraid? Right. Um, and I think, you know, with the fawn response, similar to the fight, yeah, if the person is saying, do ever do whatever you want to me, um, because they're checked out and in the past and just trying to appease maladaptive, but if they love being objectified and used, that's part of their, their fantasy adaptive. Mm. Yeah. And that, I guess that brings me to the, the thing that I said, I wanted to circle back around to eventually, um, from the beginning of the conversation is, uh, you know, reenacting certain sexual scenarios from a place of like being in control. And like, I'll say specifically here, like I know of particular practitioners who will reenact the, you know, with the consent of course, and, and you know, the permission of the, the client, like will reenact traumatic scenarios from their past so that there's a opportunity for that person to heal that traumatic experience by being in a position of complete control. And so, you know, they've got the agency to be like, stop, you know, and the, the practitioner will stop or we'll say like, you know, you need to change this because this is not exactly how I want it. And so the practitioner will change that. And so that becomes a really, like I said, powerfully transformative kind of experience for the clients because they're now, you know, they've relived that experience, but from a place of empowerment, from a place of being in control, from a place of like, this is you know, I'm the person that's dictating this, not having it, you know, be dictated to me by, by someone who I've got no power over. So, um, and that, that the way I'm tying that in is like the, the maladaptive versus adaptive response of that, you know, um, sympathetic nervous system. So like in that reenactment with that trained professional going through the, the, you know, the, the re-traumatization, but in a, in a place from, from, in a place of power and a place of empowerment, there's that adaptive, uh, adaptive response that's allowed to be kind of born, right? So the adaptive response is allowed to be kind of recognized and integrated in a healthy way. And so, yeah, I was, I was curious what you think about like that kind of trauma reenactment from a place of empowerment approach. And if you see value in it, or if you see like anything else you, you wanted to comment on that. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely value in it. And I'm going to say this to your listeners. Um, you want to make sure you're working with a practitioner who has their breaks. And what I mean by breaks, um, uh, Cam, I'm sure you've heard stories of this gone wrong too. So someone does an element of exposure therapy or walking a client through an old trauma, a good therapist, a good practitioner is going to be reading their client's body language, seeing all the signs and putting on the breaks and saying, we're done for the day. They might get five minutes into it and that's it. Like any good practitioner is going to know when to say you've done enough, you've had enough, this is good for the day. So I just, I guess that's my little public service announcement. I will get off my soapbox now, but I've just, I've had so many clients come to me and be like, I was re-traumatized by this practitioner because I feel like a lot of times bad practitioners are voyeuristic. So they want to hear what happened to the person. And um, if you're listening to this and a survivor, you don't even have to tell your therapist what happened to you if you don't want to. The details are absolutely not important i could just know you were sexually abused as a child that is plenty yeah yeah i appreciate you mentioning that and yes you're right i do know some people 
uh, some colleagues and, and practitioners who, who maybe have contributed to that. And, and, you know, my approach to asking people really personal questions is like being up front. Like I'll say to them, hey, I'm going to ask you a pretty personal question right now. You are not obliged to answer me. You can share as much or as little detail as possible. Regardless of what you share, I'll say thank you and we'll, we'll move on to something else. And if you're if it's a no and you don't want to share, like that's fine. It's not going to stop the session. We can still continue. We can just talk about something else. Uh, and if you do want to stop the session, you're, you're welcome to. So I'll just like put all cards on the table and let a client be like, great, I've got the permission to share what feels comfortable for me. And very often, just by virtue of doing that, the client does feel very comfortable sharing and, and opening up and, and going into detail about certain scenarios and situations, which is you know, fantastic that they do feel comfortable doing that. And I feel really privileged that they that they share with me. Um, but every now and again, I'll get a client that just says, yeah, I think that's as much as I want to share. And I'm great. Thank you. Appreciate you sharing. Like that's that's enough. Like let's talk about you know this other thing. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely um, resonate with that. And um, yeah, I suppose I'll, I'll mention a name. So I don't, I don't mind you know, uh, plugging a gentleman by the name of Shawnee Love, uh, for example, who does that work that I was just describing. Uh, so he's a he's a uh, sex worker and a BDSM practitioner and does a lot of boundaries and consent workshops and uh, does like some really valuable and, and transformative stuff from very, uh, from a place of, of, of a lot of integrity from my understanding and from my experience, you know, uh, seeing his work. Um, of like helping survivors work through those experiences uh, from a place of empowerment. So, um, I have a client that met him in Australia last year and just had so many wonderful things to say about him. It was like, it was like a date night, you know, um, it was the whole thing like that as as a practitioner, um, Cam, I don't know how you work, but I'm pretty much, you know, on zoom. I, I only get to see my clients when I'm traveling or leading retreats. Um, but from what I heard about Sean, they were like out on the town and like doing the whole thing. It was a whole experience. And I'm like, oh my God, how, how transformative. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Shorty's only ever, I've only ever heard good things about him. So uh, that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's good to hear. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm mindful of time as well, Holly. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's like some specific pieces of advice that you might like to share with people who are maybe listening to this and kind of recognizing, oh, I'm on that journey i'm on that kind of healing journey uh you know reclaiming my sexual health what are some some takeaways that they can leave this with to kind of help them on that journey yeah so first of all it's not too late um at all i hope you know with the example that i gave it is it is definitely not too late um to reclaim your sexual health if you feel like you don't know anything about your sexuality, working through this protocol will help you in a safe way. Kind of excavating the shame is definitely a place where it has to start. So Cam, I love that you're really, you know, a lot of psychoeducation along those lines as well. Um, it never ceases to amaze me how profound telling a story is, right? So, so when a survivor finally gets to a place, and again, it doesn't have to be the details, but just sharing with another human being, hey, this is what happened to me, and this is how I'm confused, and this is what I don't know about myself. Um, and then I just feel like uh, having great sex is the biggest fuck you to our perpetrators that we could ever have. Like, you know, whether it's a systemic abuse, um, a person in your family, but really taking back what is inherently yours, uh, it's just, you know, it's, I don't want to say the best revenge, but it's just the best way to feel like, hey, 
this belongs to me, not to you anymore. Yeah, I love that reframe of belonging to me, not to you. I think that's really, really powerful. Um, and Holly, the the intro to this podcast will have plugged your book and your social media handles and website. But for uh, you know, people that have made it this far, what's the name of your book again and where can they buy it? Yeah, so it's called Reclaiming Pleasure, A Sex Positive Guide to Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Reclaiming a Passionate Life can buy it at all the places books are sold as well as audible the only other thing i'll plug is that i'm starting to co-facilitate psychedelic assisted retreats in mexico for survivors <laughs> holy i didn't even know that god that's a whole nother conversation we need to have oh my lord okay that you just blow my mind. i'm very interested in that god i'm gonna have to get you on for another podcast if you're okay speaking about that because that is a huge thing that i Oh, you've just dropped that right a minute to go, Holly, and I'm I'm wanting to have that conversation. <laughs> that's amazing. That's so cool. Um, okay, great. That's that's really lovely to know as well. And um, glad to know that your book is on Audible as well because I'm a fiend for audiobooks. Uh, so I'm just going to jump onto that and listen to it when I'm at the gym. That's that's great. Um, thank you so much for for being so uh, you know open and and for just like sharing your wisdom today with me. I've learned heaps, and and I hope the people listening as well have learned. It's just been really really great and uh, I feel really grateful to you so thank you so much Cam thank you too and um, again thank you for having me on if you want to talk psychedelics and survivors or couples um, so much interesting and exciting work happening out there yeah I would love to yeah thank you for for, for bringing that up um, cool well, I'll talk to you soon all right thanks Cam <laughs>